Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Argyris and happy Thanksgiving and happy, happy second episode of our food trilogy. Mm, that's always the good one. Always the good one. The second one. Yeah. The second one's always, <laughs> the sequels are always better. <laughs> All famously better, right? Back to the Future <laughs> 2, the second Star Wars movie. Folks, we got nowhere to go mm-hmm. but up. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, and this week, I'm looking for you. You, you guessed it. Another more books about food. So uh, to help me are two high school English teachers, Ian and Joe. Nick, would you would you say you're hungry for books about food? Nick, can you please say that? Thank you. I'm hungry for books. Now, I'm, no, no. You have to say I'm hungry for books about food. I would like books about food. Well, no, I would like. I, no, let's take it from yeah. the top. You're missing. You're missing okay, the direction. Okay. okay. I'm hungry for books about food. <laughs> Hi, Nick. I'm Joe Holshue. I'm a high school English teacher. And if you are looking for a book about food, I recommend Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef, written by Gabrielle Hamilton, a restaurateur. It's like a more aggressive salt, fat, acid. Yeah, it is. It's like blood, bones, butter, salt, fat, acid, heat. What, these chefs, they think they can just list things. It's like an ingredient list. Is she any relation to the Hamilton of the that they wrote the, the movie about? Oh, let's save the good questions for a little bit later, Ian. <laughs> yeah, Ian sorry. Sorry. Um, hello. H- hello. My name is Dr. Ian DeGlaze, and I'm your sous chef for the evening. If you're interested in braising questions about my book, I'm ready to reduce them to a gelatinous wow. mass of answers. Unbelievable. The book I brought is another wonderful listy type book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking by Samin Nosrat. And I just want to say for the record, it is not about mastering the elephants of good cooking because you cannot master them. They're unmasterable. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely (laughs) enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. (laughs) Who who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. (laughs) 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 All right, hold on. I just need to keep track. We got... Salt, acid, blood, bones, uh, bones, cheesecloth, cheesecloth. Thank you, Ian. Heat and a blue 99 Nissan Sentra. Okay, perfect. I'm excited. I'm excited to stew all these together. Uh, lovely. Boy, I feel like we really sucked up all our, our food small talk last week. Do we have anything left? Can I ask you a little question? Mm hmm. Just to kind of get yeah. the, um, to get the, well, to get the fat rendering, am I right? Um, oh, what have you guys cooked recently? <laughs> tell me about the, tell me about the wonderful things you've cooked recently and, or the things you're going to be cooking for thanks giblets. Mm-hmm. Mm. My, my, I just have an oven. Just, it just, it streams pizza. That's all it does. <laughs> just pizza after pizza <laughs> yeah, after it's just, pizza. It's pizza night every night. It's like a. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, and and my wife, as we discussed on last week's episode, is a vegetarian. So that means that I don't really cook meals as much as we just cook like ingredients and put them on a plate together. <laughs> so uh, like a couple nights ago, we had roasted sweet potatoes so with some sort of like bean on the side. Like it, it, they don't really have names for the meals that we eat. 
Welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call strongly, podcast strongly here, podcast. Um, uh, where every week we pick a theme, and Ian and Joe, and I- Ian and Joe, and <laughs> <laughs> Ian and Joe, we'll and yes, and Nick and, um, <laughs> and <laughs> we gotta stop recording these on Mondays. Uh, we're Ian and Joe, <laughs> we're Ian, Ian and, and Joe, and a Nick and a mm-hmm. Nick it sounds like a Harry Potter creature. <laughs> It sounds it sounds like Nick if you were in Oliver Twist. Like that's what it sounds like. Like Ian and Joan and, and Nickin. Mm, that's a deep cut that I don't understand. Uh where every week uh you know we pick a theme and Ian and Joan uh bring a book. Um where um and we pick a winner just to piss. Do you just them off. want us to do the part where we talk now, Nick? <laughs> like I think I'm pretty maybe, close. I'm pretty close. Maybe we should go to when we talk. No, I got it. I get talking. But of course we do have show rules to keep us on track. We're not monsters. I feel like I haven't, we haven't done these rules in a while, but rule number one is only unavoidable spoilers, gentlemen. Rule number two is omit it's needless omit words, needless Joe. Words, and rule Joe. number three is winning isn't everything. Oh. It's the only thing that's important to Ian and Joe. Vince. To Joe and Vince Lombardi. <laughs> wow. And of course, of course, you know, they're shadow rules. They're the same every week and they are salt, fat, acid, and heat. And blood and bones and butter. No, there's a, those no, are not. Those every are fake week, they never rules, change. Don't you, you try can't and leave blood, bones, and butter just because it's my book title this week. So don't you try and derail my attempt butter. to subliminally manipulate Nick. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that'll probably work. That that subliminal messaging is real. <laughs> that does work. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, lovely. Joe, uh, do you want to take 30 seconds and just tell me what your uh, gory, gory food book is about? <laughs> it, it's all blood and bones, Nick. <laughs> Nick, Anthony Bourdain said that this book was, quote, simply the best memoir by a chef ever. And while I think that's going a bit too far, I do think it's a really good book. It's charming. It's romantic. At times, it's gritty. It also has an awful, compelling personal story of the author and chef, Gabrielle Hamilton, and how she bounced around the world for 20 years, had a series of crappy uh, uh, kitchen jobs, and opened a restaurant on a whim because she noticed it was abandoned. And amazingly, it worked out. Uh, 300 pages, 2011. Gabrielle Hamilton, Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef. I didn't know that we had 48 minutes to talk about our book. Yeah, a tight 30 <laughs> once again. Uh, lo- I, I feel like if you just like cadence your voice correctly, like you're about to end, Nick leaves you alone. <laughs> so you, you just have to always be, always be closing. A, B, C. Yeah. Well, yes. let's not pretend like there's any consistency here. Ian, your time has started. <laughs> Joe has previously yelled about his dislike for simple solution books. So, Joe, you're going to hate this one. Samin (laughs) Nosrat's award-winning cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, argues that mastering these four elements of good cooking, salt, fat, acid, and heat, will make you a good cook. Of course, there's more to it than that, which I will get into, but Nosrat makes a persuasive argument that we can't ignore these basic building blocks. Hmm. 30 seconds. Interesting, Ian. Um, Ian, I would say just for your, um, respect of the rules, I'd like to reward Uh that. Uh, Mm -hmm. and in, in, I'd like you to go first. I'd also like to figure out what this book's about. Cause correct me if I'm wrong, but you can just watch the Netflix show. Correct. Ooh, Ian, um, question. Did you just watch the Netflix show or did you read? <laughs> it is a book podcast, you know? I did not. Um, I didn't actually know that it was uh, a Netflix show until, um, I, I was into my, well into my research, um, that my sense of the, the Netflix show is it's more about 
I mean, yes, it does kind of use the 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 format of like this is an episode about salt. This is an episode about fat. Mm-hmm. But that seems more like um, parts unknown in that she's visiting various places. And, and this book is, is much more like this book takes place in the kitchen. So I don't think you could just watch the show and get what goes on in this book. Um, but you could try for sure. We could do a, a scientific experiment. Right. It's a different, different interpretation of the, the subject. Anyway, so it is young Ian. Yes. Old Nick. What this book about? Um, and I would like for both of you some action items on how we can improve our Thanksgiving meals this week. Oh, oh goodness. I, I have, have so that. many action items. Yeah. Oh, my God. I don't have any action Oops. items. Mine's a Pop memoir. quiz. <laughs> Suck it. <Aww>. I, um, <laughs> uh, she actually, one of her, one of her little um, uh, anecdotes in this book is about um, eating a Thanksgiving dinner and realizing it's gross. And then she talks about specifically why it's gross and what should be done to improve it. So um, weirdly, we are weirdly I'll perfect start, for this. Okay. I start with that? <laughs> yeah so she she has this she has this great story about um she when she is she is of persian extraction um and and when she was uh young they didn't really do thanksgiving so when she got her first kind of big cooking job and she was out learning how to be a cook and hanging out with a bunch of other cooks she went over to a fellow chef's home for thanksgiving and she was eating it and she was like all this food is the same. It's just like soft and kind of bland and (laughs) rather salty and creamy. And there's not, she said, there's not a lot of acid. And she said, look Mm. around your Thanksgiving table and you don't actually get a lot of acidity, a lot of brightness. She said, the only real acidic thing out of Thanksgiving, like a traditional Thanksgiving meal is your cranberries and cranberry sauce. Yeah. Yeah. People go all over cranberries because that's kind of it. And that's a, that's a really interesting thing that, you know, as, as my family is kind of gearing up for Thanksgiving this year, I want to think about, you know, how we're doing potluck style. What am I going to bring that will be a little bit, you know, a little bit more bright, a little bit more of a pucker as opposed you could to bring just a vial of acid. Can I recommend a vial of acid, Ian, uh, to really liven things up? Yeah, and not to get too technical here, Ian, but um, <laughs> can you just kind of, yeah, maybe explain a little bit better, like, what type of acid do you mean? Yeah. Uh, sulfuric. Sulfuric. Or are you asking oh me or Ian? <laughs> yeah. So I think the best, the, be- the best way for me to talk about this is to kind of walk you guys through her action items for these four uh, uh, elements of cooking, not elephants. Um, I have nothing to say about the elephants of cooking. Um, So um, acid, fat, salt, heat. Um, She says with acid, you're using too little. Um, People gravitate towards cranberries because in the whole meal, there's not much that's acidic, not much that's bright. She says different acids do different things to um, the way that your food tastes, the way that your food smells, the way that your food looks. Um, Vinegar works differently from yogurt, she would say, yeah, you want something sour? Put some yogurt, put some sour cream on it. Sour cream is both a fat and it's got a little bit of the the sour, the zing to it. And these work differently from citrus. And so she has these little, these there are beautiful illustrations in this book. And she just kind of like says, okay, for this kind of food, this kind of cuisine, you want to be using these sorts of acids. 
um, your citruses, um, your your uh, more kind of vegetable-based um, acids. For these, you want to be doing more cultured acids and so on. Basically, you're matching your acid to what you want it to do. One of the best things she said is put a, put a, a little a little teaspoonful of, of vinegar in your soup. She said you don't taste the vinegar, but the way the acid works is like a prism. It not a prism where you would like maybe keep like you're trapped. Yeah, like you might put some <laughs> elephants of a, cooking an elephant in prison. You might put some elephants of cooking in prison, but you would not put vinegar in prison because okay. vinegar is a prism that kind of refracts right. all the flavors of um, your soup, not just your your saltiness, but your earth. Every time you talk about the elephants of cooking, I can't help but picture like elephants wearing chef hats, which is really cute, like really funny. But Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder, like, would the chef hat just be really little on top of the elephant or would it be an elephant sized chef hat? It would be so big. What do you think would be funnier? Probably the big one. I think a big one. Yeah, really like a really big. I think a little one would be funny because like they're already so big. I think it'd be so little on him. You won't be able to tell what it was. But it could be so little. Okay. But, okay. So either way, it's not going to fall off, right? I think we can at least establish that. No, no, this no, thing no. is secured tightly. And yeah. it's going to stand up. Like, it's definitely going to stand up, too. It's not going to be a floppy one. Right, right, right. Well, I think if it was bigger, I'd like it to be more floppy, though. If it was small, oh, I think yeah. small and tall, you know? You yeah, wouldn't want one of those, those like, really stiff ones that was huge, because that would be a little bit scary, honestly. God, I can't decide. He would hit it on trees, I think. Like, if it was tall. Yeah, it would right. have like 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 grass stains and leaf stains on it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a risk. Yeah. They'd be filthy. Yeah, bigger bigger is always better. If we learned one thing from Anthony Bourdain, it's you've got to keep your whites clean, and that includes hats. Mm. Um, so that's what that's what Samin Nosrat has to say about acid. What do you guys want to hear about next? I can tell you about salt or fat or heat. Okay. <laughs> um, I kind of want to hear about salt Ooh, because one choice. time I heard. I heard that it's crazy that we put salt and pepper on the table together because salt is like a flavor enhancer is yeah. what I read. Like it, it, like it enhances like the flavors that are already existing, whereas pepper is mm. just a spice. So like, yeah. why, why don't we put salt and cinnamon on the table or salt and cardamom? Right. So I, my vote is for salt. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, she actually, the fans want to hear more about salt for sure. Yeah. We, well, we're a salty, salty bunch over here. Um, yeah, so she says something very similar, and she calls out the fact that salt is yes a flavoring, but it's also a mineral, um, and and it's very it just like it works um, uh, chemically differently from how how pepper works. Uh, and she does say like part of the benefit of this book is it's got kind of a global scope. So she does say yeah, like if you're in a different part of the world, it's not going to be salt and pepper on the table. It'll be salt and cumin for instance, in some parts of the world or salt and chili powder. Um, she, she was talking about, I think it's maybe, maybe Pakistan where you don't put salt on at all. You put sugar and chili powder on the table. Those are your table spices. So That's crazy. It kind of depends crazy. on where you're at, but she, her big thing with salt is, so if you're using too little uh, acid, um, you're not using it kind of widely enough. You're not using it frequently enough. She would say in terms of sheer volume, you are not using enough salt. So here are some things that she says about salt. When you cook things in water, like pasta or potatoes, the water should be as salty as the sea. Mm. She says that when you're done salting a piece of meat, it should look like a light snowstorm has passed over it. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of salt. It's pretty salty. She says you need to get like one of these kind of shallow bowls that you can dip your whole hand in and pull out like a little palm full of salt as opposed to like grab a little pinch. She has a whole section on your hand gestures with salt. And she says, <laughs> I'm diabetes. But, well, <laughs> she says disease. this. She's like, yeah, it's scary to dump in like kind of palmfuls <laughs> of salt, but know what you're doing. If you're doing this in cooking water, most of that salt is going down the drain. Most of that salt isn't going to end up in your food. So be smart. Um, when you're going to be like salting meat, yes, make it look like a light, a light snowstorm, but it's not all going to stay on the surface of the meat. It's going to work its way in. Uh, she's a big fan of like pre-salting, kind of brining, so that the salt can start to break break your meat down, break down your proteins and stuff. Um, she talks about salt in um, in like breads and pastas. So she is a big, big fan of salt. And basically, with this one and with with fat also, and just a little preview, she says, unless you're like seriously in health concerns, it's it's all good. Just let it ride. Just do, just do the salt. It's not good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> doctor. I have a question. Yeah, I would really like a, I would like a book from her cardiologist to see if he supports these. That's right. Takeaways. We have some real tough questions regarding this, the health advice going on here. I have a question for you, Ian. Yeah. Um, okay. Four things that are important to cooking good. Yes. Cooking well. Why, yep. why not sweet? Why not sugar? That seems, it's on my tongue. I taste it. Well, yeah, no, these aren't the these aren't Did the four like fl- these aren't the four flavors. She's not saying these are the only flavors that matter. She's saying these are the things that you need to master in order to be good at cooking. Um, yes, there are plenty of intense things you can do with sugar, but she's she believes that salt is a more basic, a more fundamental, uh, uh, a foundational part of cooking than sugar is. So if you do salt wrong, no amount of good sugar cooking can be, can be (laughs) like, but you could mess up your sugar sugar and it'll still be, you're sweet and it'll still be fine. These are also really interconnected. One of the things that I really appreciate about this book is she says like, you don't just put salt in to have salty tastes. You put salt in again, like the, like the elephant prison, you put salt in in order mm-hmm. to bring out other flavors. So, for instance, um, a, mm-hmm. a delicious cookie, a delicious like chocolate chip cookie. You'll sprinkle some sea salt on top for a crunch, and also to bring out those those um, the complexity of the nuttiness of the the browned butter and the the richness of the chocolate, the creaminess of the chocolate. It's um, an enhancer. It is. It really is. Yes. So she talks about fat and she says with fat, basically you're using it wrong acid. You're not using it more. uh, You're not using it broadly enough salt. You're not putting enough in fat. You're just, you're just kind of being, we're, we're all being too sort of slapdash with our use of fat. So certain fats match certain cuisines. You don't put olive oil in German dishes. Uh, You don't put butter so much in Mediterranean dishes. Um, You don't, if you're making a pie crust, you don't melt the butter. You don't ever, ever use shortening. Um, Olive oil goes extremely rancid, That's extremely nonsense. easily. Wait, 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 wait. You don't ever use shortening? No. Like, don't use it? Just don't. Like, don't buy it. Like, unless you're, that unless you're so vegan. It's specifically in pie crust or in everything. No, she says. What she about get- pie crust? This is, this is timely, Ian. 
Okay. Yeah. There's going to yeah. be a lot of shortening going into pie crust this week. Yeah. So well, folks, she goes into like the, the molecular science of what happens when shortening um, in a pie crust like heats up and it's not pretty. She says when butter in pie crust heats up, the butter turns basically simply put to steam. And that gives us that delicious kind of tender flakiness. But when you put shortening in your pie crust, it just kind of gets runny and it binds things together and it may give you some flakes, but the, the nasty flavored kind of she, the word she uses is plasticky. The plasticky flavors of shortening do not evaporate and you end up with a mouthful of pie that tastes like shortening as opposed to whatever it's supposed to. Disgusting. Yeah. So I have yeah, not like used pie, sweet, sweet pie. Yeah, I've not used shortening for a while and she solidly persuaded me never to go back. Um, the other, the last one that she gets into is, um, heat. So she says basically with heat, and this is the, one of the scariest parts of this whole book. She says, you're being too scientific with your use of heat, which is horrifying because I don't know about you guys. But now Ian clarify, are we talking about heat as in hot, like hot, like the stove is hot, yes. like hot, right? Like, t- like turning the burner. Are we off. talking about those delicious red chili flakes I put on pizza? My frozen pizzas. No, 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 no. This is talking, thank you. This is talking about temperature. So this is talking about how you, and she's not, she mm. emphasizes, hey, baking is separate. I'm not talking about baking. She says, I'm talking about cooking. Yeah, ba- doesn't count. Baking is a science, cooking is an art. She says, good cooking relies not on, you know, put the sheet pan in the oven to roast for 20 minutes at 450 and more mm. about practice, smell, sizzle, sound tenderness yep you got to know your heat sources you got to understand like hey my here's a little story a little little window into my miserable horrific life i recently moved out of uh a um a rental uh house we were were, were renting a house and as such we couldn't really do many capital improvements on it and the the stove in that in that house was i swear from the 1970s and it was so bad and it ran 50 degrees hot and oh to, wow so like to roast yeah. in that thing was basically guesswork it was it was like the first few cakes i baked were just hopelessly burnt because i didn't know my heat source and i wasn't understanding like this thing is criminally like uncalibrated i'm sorry ian eventually i began to kind of figure it out and, and adjust so um, I could bake at the proper temperature. But she says you have to know what your heat sources do. You got to match the heat source to the food. Don't go too hot on things that will be bothered by that. Don't go too cool on things that will be bothered by that. Understand what heat does to different kinds of food and don't, don't overdo it. Okay, I'm looking at this one-star review, and I'm not even going to read it. It just goes on and on. This is like, how am I supposed to do? Lick raw chicken? And like, how much salt is too much salt? And like, what am I a science? What am I a food scientist reading this book? She says, I think I'd rather just keep muddling along than had the anxiety this book creates Ooh, in my life. Interesting. <laughs> um, oh, so, so is this going to make you feel like you're doing it wrong? Like, if I read this book, am I going to feel like I no longer know how to cook? Yeah, I mean, most people don't know how to right. cook. So my question is, is this overwhelming or is this actually useful? I think this is actually, and, and, and with all due respect to the extremely wrong person who wrote that review, 
Um, can we go yeah. ahead and name and shame? Her them name was Jackie. Jackie. With all due with all due respect to Jackie, Jackie. which is that Jackie. Like not very much. Um, this book right, is not very much. Sorry, oof. Jack. <laughs> this book is not about like you're doing it wrong. This book is like you need to figure this out for yourself. This book is like here are your basic building blocks. Once you oh, understand them, you can experiment. You can play. So I think the one the one issue I see with this book is. It imagines that all of us have more time and leisure to experiment than we do. <laughs> this is like very aspirational. She says like, hey, you want to figure out if you put enough sugar, uh, enough salt on that chicken? Make the chicken up. See if it's good. If it's good, write it down. If, you, if it's bad, you know you got to use more next time. You got to use less next time. But she, impl- she imagines that we can experiment and I don't know about you guys, but I'm busy. Like it's it's hard to to develop, um, like to, to experiment in the kitchen. That being said, she's also playing the long game. So she writes this after like decades in the restaurant industry, decades as a cook. So she understands like you just need to learn over time, like what's good and what's bad. And I think this. Book, so if you're like a if it's like a hobby for you. Right. Yeah. Like this is a good way to improve your yes. hobby of cooking. Yes. Yeah. And you can take as much sort the of the person interested in, in being the home chef. Right. You can take as much right. of this or as little as you want. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and I guess just to, sorry, just to wrap that fine. up for, for our friend Jackie here, I guess this would be somebody who's interested in like improving. Right. Like showing, you know, progress into something that they do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Into to, something so important as cooking. Right. To, 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 to be able to say, Hey, I did this chicken and it was way, way, way too salty. And then I did it again and it was completely undersalted. And then I did it a third time and it was closer to what I wanted. I think that's kind of exciting. And that's one of the things I like about this book and, and reading other food books is how inspiring this is. So I, I, I get into ruts. We get into ruts in terms of like we're, we're eating the same, you know, five, 10, 15 dishes. Um, cause they're easy. Cause we know them. But reading this book and reading, you know, Bourdain last week and other food books as well in this kind of little mini trilogy, it's breaking me out of the rut. I'm I'm interested in trying new things. Cookbooks are kind of like novels in that they give you an imaginative escape. It's like, hey, Ian, you have time, right? You have energy. You have access to ingredients. You can make fancy, delicious food. And maybe I can, maybe I can't. But the promise of the cookbook uh, she says in in the in the book um, later. She's talking about recipes. She says recipes tell a story. A good recipe tells a story, and, and it convinces you. Hey, yeah, Ian, you could you could make this. You could taste this deliciousness. And also, this is going to sound like a pander, but I swear it's not. The pictures <laughs> are really really good. Noted, Bad noted, man. and accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy McNaughton did did the illustrations for this, and um. There's just this one that's stuck with me that's kind of changed how I think about um, using oil when I'm pan frying something. So it's these three little bubbles and the one bubble has a completely like flat, perfect surface. And the next bubble has kind of a rough surface. And the next bubble has a really jagged, like a sawtooth surface. And the smooth surface has the caption like nonstick pan. And the middle one that's kind of rough has the caption normal steel pan and the last one has the caption cast iron and it's just this visual representation it's a visual argument that when you cook food in cast iron it's like cooking food on a a saw blade it's very very ragged and jagged and so if you want to fill 
fill up all those little those little jags and, and 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 holes. You got to put plenty of oil in there to help it. Like so, the food doesn't just get stuck on those jagged stuff. Um, the illustrations are a little bit whimsical, a little bit funky, and they absolutely contribute. It's not just pretty. It's it's um, it's contributing to the the message of the book. Explanatory, interesting. Well, I like that. I actually like that it doesn't sound easy. <laughs> like I'm, I don't need like another boring recipe based right. guide right. book. No, right. And she's well, and I like I like that it's like first principles. Yes, I like it's like hey, I could give you a bunch of recipes, but like let me tell you about like the you know in teaching we would call these the enduring understandings about food. Like the, like this is what you need to know. Yeah, she's making a radical claim. She says. There are basic elements of cooking, and none of you are really doing them right. So, <laughs> none of you know what you're doing. Yeah, it's basic, right? You just Probably. you you figure out salt, fat, acid, and heat, and you're set. But also, this might fundamentally change how you look at recipes, how you look at acid, how you look at um like butter. So, or or shortening, or shortening. Don't look at shortening. Throw it right in the trash. Yeah, I'm still gonna use it. Right, in the, it's plastic. It. It's to- horrible plastic. Is it though? What plasticky? Is now I gotta look this up. What I have no idea. Fuck is shortening? What is shortening? What is short? What is shortening? Guys, all all great things must come to an end. And although I am looking forward to my pies filled with Crisco. Um, I, b- I believe, I believe in our third course. Do we have a theme for our third course? <clears throat> food. Is it food? It's food. <laughs> it's, 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 Listen, it's, we're just, it's just stuffing our one. faces with food over and over and over. <laughs> okay. Do you guys have more books about food? Yes. <laughs> oh, there's so many books about food. I, okay. Here's the thing. I am an inveterate purchaser and hunter of invertebrate. Um, do you walk on all fours, Ian? Yeah. <laughs> you spineless <laughs> son you of a gun. Uh, <laughs> fish fear me. Hey, Ian, could you explain the word that you just said? Please? I said inveterate. It means like um, yeah. I'm, I'm unapologetic. I love kitchen gadgets. I think it's Veterans Day was last week. That's true. It was. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of kitchen gadgets, so I'm going to, and I also history, so I'm going to read B. Wilson's book from 2013, Consider the Fork, a history of how we cook and eat. And it's focused on history, obviously, but also on kitchen gadgets and kitchen utensils. So I'm very excited to talk about things like pots and pans, knife, fire, <laughs> measure, grind. <laughs> Yep. Next week, you'll have to. It's going to be like you get cornered into a Costco demonstration. <laughs> we will have free samples. Oh, man. Nick, and next week, I'm not going to. It's food week. It's not pots and pan week. I'm not. <laughs> throughout history, food has done more than simply provide sustenance, Nick. It has acted as a tool for social transformation. I am bringing an editable. 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 Okay. Editable. editable. An inimitable. An I'm bringing an edible history, an invertebrate of humanity, an edible history, edible history of humanity. Holy smokes. I can't believe I have to Come talk. on, Joe. Um, I'm bringing a book called The Edible History of Humanity by a guy called Tom Standage. Um, and it's just what it sounds like. And the cover's got like a chicken on it and a pig and a potato and a, another potato. 
and some wheat. Okay. So two two potatoes. Well, this other one might be something else. That's a nice list. It's a turn up. Yeah, thank you for listing it. Um, (laughs) Turn up for what? It's two potatoes. I'm looking at it. They both got eyes. Well, here's the problem. There's there's an O in history and an O in of, so he needed two O's, so it had to be two potatoes. Yeah, that's a good point. I uh, I'm looking forward to <laughs> further explanations of the covers next week, <laughs> <laughs> as we do. All right, Nick. Nick, this week I brought a book called Blood, Bones, and Butter by a chef called Gabrielle. Hamilton. Right. And it's just hard n- to not think of the musical every time you say her name. It is. Right. Um, the the famous music, Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. Like the hills are alive with Gabrielle no. Hamilton. Yeah, like that musical? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Lion King. Yeah, yeah that's the one. Yeah. Gabrielle Hamilton is a chef. She is a New York City chef. She's a big city chef, you mm-hmm. might say. She <laughs> has a tiny restaurant in the big city called Prune. Um, it, I wasn't familiar with it. Nick, have you ever heard of this thing, Prune? Uh, the food, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes, the, the food. How uh, is it spelled? Is it spelled like P-R-U-U-M-L-Y-E-N? Yeah. Uh, no, it's actually P R O O O O O N. It's like prune. I hate that. Okay. Yeah. No. It, no. It's it's spelled prune like the like the thing that you feed your kids. Uh, because people, I don't think adults eat them. Um, it, no, it's spelled prune. Are prunes figs? Is that no? They're they're plums. Figs. They're special are plums. plums that are figs are figs are plums. Okay. Check. Prunes are plums and figs are. Figs, figs. Are, figs, figs are, are figs. There's a fig tree. Figs are figs. All right. So I read this book this week, Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef. And it follows this woman named Gabrielle Hamilton. Um, I, I wasn't familiar with Gabrielle Hamilton before I read this book, but I think if you were in the right circles, you would be. Um, her restaurant in New York City is this like tiny, tiny restaurant. It has something like 20 seats in it, uh, but is kind of a staple in whatever particular part of New York she is in. Uh, She is a contributor to a bunch of different food publications, including a regular contributor to the New York Times. She had an article like after COVID hit that went kind of viral. Uh, It was like two weeks after New York City shut down. uh, And it basically said, hey, my restaurant's been my life and my sustenance for 20 years. And this is where I'm at now. Um, And it's it's kind of Great. Um, wait, 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 I don't understand. Where, what do you mean? Here's where I'm at now. What does that mean? <laughs> like, well, she just had to like she had this restaurant for 20 years in New York City. And all of a sudden, like when New York City shut down, she shut down her restaurant. Like, oh, she, oh, she closed it. Gotcha. Nick, I think I think I understand it. She had she she had just gotten in a big shipment of prunes uh, mm, at her restaurant. Nope. And nope. they, un, they just, un, they started un, to go yeah. bad. She couldn't unload them fast enough. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think prunes go bad. I think there's a lot of misinformation. Well, you said this is where I'm at now. I thought it was like a geography article. Oh, that could be too. <laughs> I'm currently sweltering under piles of prunes that have collapsed upon me. You guys, are you good? I, is it? Hey, is it these your are system? your stories, Joe. <laughs> We're just here for the ride. Um, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Yes. Please continue telling us about Gabrielle Hamilton. She writes, she writes a memoir 
Um, it starts when she's a little kid growing up in Pennsylvania. It finishes like, I don't know, shortly before she publishes it. And it follows her from like being a kid to starting a like pretty successful restaurant in New York City. So there's a handful of things to like about this book. Um, one of them is that there's in this book, she has a lot of parallels to our good friend, friend of the show, Anthony Bourdain. Oh. Um, she, well, sorry guys, big fan. Uh, she <laughs> kicks around kitchens for a long time. She makes her chops in tourist towns. Like she has all sorts of like terrible cooking jobs. Like she's kind of like a, a tough girl who can hang with the guys, but unlike Anthony Bourdain's book, which very often is you know, we talked last week about how it would probably be canceled today. Uh, unlike Anthony Bourdain's book, she really paints a world where where women are not, I don't know, where kitchens aren't a horrible place for women to work, like where she works with a bunch of super capable women who like own their lines and who like are awesome to work with, which to be fair is also what Anthony Bourdain said. But there's a lot less like misogyny in this book. Sure, she doesn't necessarily get into that is what you're saying well not only does she not get into it she tends to work in places where it doesn't exist at least especially as her career goes on and she has more and more autonomy over over where she works i think this is the risk of these these like kitchen memoirs because bourdain says hey this is what the underbelly looks like but then he towards the end of the book he's like um, but I, here is this other kitchen, which is totally diametrically opposite. <laughs> totally like, yeah. different. Her, her experience sounds like rather similar in some ways, but rather different in other ways. And like, yeah, sure. For her, it was one way, but the risk I think with these kind of generalizing about these memoirs is okay, cool. That's, that's the way it was for you. But it does that mean necessarily it's the same way everywhere. <laughs> Let me give you some life advice based on only my experience. Uh, well, just to, to add some clar- <laughs> just to add some clarification, uh, Bourdain used to work in like your middle of the road restaurants where like you're serving like a thousand people a night and like it's turn and burn right. and like they're lower lower qu- not Ooh, turn and not burn quality I like, that, like quality isn't like it's not a Michelin star restaurant. Yeah, while she while she you know owns Spotted Pig, which is like a lauded, you know, high-end restaurant where that that shit doesn't fly. Well, I want to be clear here. Like, one of the things that's compelling about her story is for the first really, like, 20 years of this story, she's kicking around the same sorts of restaurants that Anthony Bourdain is kicking around. Like, she's working in these tourist traps sure. that are just, like, turnover, turnover, turnover tables. She, for a long time, works in industrial catering, which I didn't know anything Ooh. about, but... Yeah, she talked about is just like, I mean, the the absolute most assembly line of assembly line cooking that you that you can do um, and just kind of this soul crushing, you know, production job. So she works in like these tough places. It's not like she, you know, started with the silver Fair spoon. Enough. Fair enough. Fair enough, Joe. I didn't ah. read the book. I'm just talking shit over here. So she, she earned her stripes. <laughs> she earned her spatula. Well, okay. This is, this is kind of the question. Um, so, so yes, she did earn her spatula. She has a pretty interesting story. Um, I would say that 
it contrasts a little bit to Bourdain's book because Anthony Bourdain is really like in love with working in kitchens. Like when he talks about his book or when he titles his book, it's called Kitchen Confidential. Like his essays in his book are about working in kitchens with people. That's not exactly how Gabrielle structures her book. Like kitchens are present in her book, but her book is really about food. And the relationships that she builds around food. So most of her book is about like people that she loves, people that she works with. And like food is always present in every single chapter. But like the kitchens are more of a back seat, whereas for Anthony Bourdain, they're front and center. Mm. So for Bourdain, the the relationships are kind of the channel, the 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 relationships get us to the food, but here the food gets us to the relationships. Yeah, I think that's a great way to talk Thank about you. It, to say that. Good job, Ian. Yes. Well done. Ian didn't even read Finally. the book and he's got better one-liners than you, Joel. You got to step it up here. Well, I, I <laughs> this know. This is I'm embarrassing. Sorry. I'm my best, guys. I read a book every week. I have a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> Just try frozen pizza. It'll save you a lot of time. <laughs> it's even more for, uh, time-saving when um, you eat it. It's still frozen. <laughs> I'll have to try that. Thank you. Getting lots of tips on this food episode. <laughs> well, one of the things that Minasrat says is heat. You don't necessarily need it. Just eat your pizza frozen. <laughs> yeah. Skip it. <laughs> she works in these crummy kitchens for a very long time, right? She works like 20 years in industrial catering and these tourist trap kitchens and all this stuff. And then she opens this restaurant in New York City, Nick, on kind of a whim. Like in her neighborhood, there's a restaurant like this little French bistro that goes out of business. All of a sudden, one day it's boarded up. And she just so happens to know the the guy who must manage the lease, like the property manager who's, who must run it. And he's like, hey, Gabrielle, have you ever thought about opening a kitchen? And she claims in her book that up until that moment, she had not. Like up until like that second that he asked, no, she never really had. But when he asked the question and she looked through the window and she describes like this derelict place with cockroaches and like rats running across the bar, she talks about just falling in love with this place and how she could just see it all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. Now she opens a restaurant here. Now this is Nick. It's, it's a recipe for disaster, right? Like Anthony yes. Bourdain has an entire chapter in his book about the type of person who should not open a restaurant. And I just checked off like three of his boxes, like in that <laughs> little description that I gave, right? She opens this restaurant. She opens it to serve. Her quote is something along the lines of, of the type of food that people actually want when they're hungry. She gets mm -hmm. a positive review in the New York Times and basically she sells out every service for the next like 20 years. Like, <laughs> like, like she just opens up this kitchen. Obviously she like knows what she's doing. She's cooking things that people want. She's doing something right, but she doesn't really go into it beyond that. Like she kind of offhand mentions this reviewer came in. We got a positive write up and I've sold out every service for the last 20 years. Yeah. That's like pretty rare. It's like hitting the lottery. Like it's insane, yeah. right? There's certainly luck at play, right? Yeah. This this sounds this reminds me of like when so not to wax bitter about academia, but in academia, basically if you want a, a good job with benefits, um, you basically have to hit the lottery. Um and 
people who get these jobs oftentimes cast it as well. I was just smarter than everyone else. I was just better. Yeah. I just, you know, I went out there and I, on, on the interview, I just kind of did this quirky thing and they loved me. But the truth is, it's not like because you necessarily are so cool. It's because of the, just the, the sheer dumb luck. Like just the dumb luck circumstances that you have found yourself in. And, and, right. And, when and you read this book, the counterpoint being, I'm sure she's extremely talented and smart. <laughs> oh, sure. All these people are talented. <laughs> the, but like the other for side every, of that for, for every person like her, there are probably dozens of talented cooks who have lost it, who have lost, who, who've kind of gambled and, and, and sure it hasn't paid off or, or never get the chance. Well, right. Yeah. I think, I think we're done talking about your book, Joe. Uh, why don't you continue, please? <laughs> We're done with our point about your author. (laughs) Well, uh, she talks once where she gets invited. She's like, well, when you're a female chef in New York and there's like four of us, she makes the joke. (laughs) When you're a female chef in New York, you get a lot of invitations to like speak at events, right? Like a lot of things like women in cooking at NYU or whatever the local culinary schools are. right? And she says, and I go to these panels and I sit on them and I listen to these other chefs talk this straight, what she kind of says is bullshit. And it's kind of what Ian's talking about. Oh, well, I did this and I was so smart. Did you really have to do this and protect your image? Where her takeaway here, you know, she's somewhat cognizant about this. I think she does recognize that there's an element of luck in what she has. I think she also recognizes that she's super talented. But when she gets questions at these panels like, how do you get your name out there? Or, you know, how do you, how do you like attract a following in your restaurant? All these other women are, you know, talking about like their, I guess it went to be an Instagram at the time, but all these other like female chefs are talking about like Facebook and where they source their ingredients. And she's like, and she's like, this is insane. These young ladies that we're talking to aren't going to be in a position to source their own ingredients for years and years and years. (laughs) She's like, do you know what you need to do to get your name out there? You need to go and get a job and do a really good job at that job. Like you just have to be so damn good. People cannot ignore you. Um, And she kind of like has some pushback in this book about, you know, about how smart these other female chefs are or how cut or how canny they are. Right. It's always nice to hear the successful person say, um, I don't know. I'm really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also not that useful. Also not that useful. Um, all right. Why should I read this book, Joe? Okay. There's, there's two strands in this book that I think are, are, are great strands. to follow. One nice. of them, one of them is her strand, right? One of them is her, like her life and cooking and her, like going up in like this series of bad jobs that she had, which is entertaining and funny and gives you a glimpse inside all these different worlds. The other strand, though, that's really interesting is the strand of her romantic relationships throughout because it's really kind of a crazy journey that she takes. So she opens this kitchen. She, I'm sorry. She's working all these different jobs. She's feeling unfulfilled at a certain point. And she says, hey, do you know what would be fulfilling is I think I need to go get my MFA in writing. Uh, so she applies to a bunch of MFA programs and she gets accepted to the University of Michigan, which is like. Wow. a killer MFA program. Wow. Like it's, you know, the Harvard of the Midwest, right? Um, she gets accepted to the university of Michigan. She goes to the MFA program there at uh, the writing program and 
kind of hates it, like kind of slogs it out over a couple of years, dislikes it, like thinks that the other people that she's in there with are like pretentious and kind of suck and things like that, which like to be fair, they probably are pretentious and they probably do kind of suck, right? All um, of them. For sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. All of them, right? Like if you're in an MFA program. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. Um, she graduates from the MFA program. She goes back to New York. She's cooking again and she brings her girlfriend with her. Um, she's living with her girlfriend for a couple of years while she opens Prune. And she talks about like, look, when you open your own restaurant, like it's beyond a full-time job. Like I brought this girlfriend back to New York, this, this beautiful Michigan girl. And we basically didn't see each other for two years. And then she met this guy in her restaurant and he's like this suave dude. He's Italian. He's an MD PhD. And she's like, it really caught me off guard because I was gay. Like, like I was a lesbian, right? And he would like be flirtatious with me and he would come back and he would like massage my shoulders and he was a really good friend, but it didn't really like, like I never thought of him in a romantic way until he started having green card problems. <laughs> oh, where is this story going? <laughs> yeah. So this is where I this think story a better is question going. is, where is this story not going? <laughs> yeah. So. They decide to get married. This guy, like this guy's like, Hey, I'm having green card issues. They're not going to let me teach in the United States anymore. I need to get married. So she marries him. Like she, she marries him. Her girlfriend, by the way, really doesn't like this. (laughs) (laughs) Like is very against it. She marries him. And the weird thing is, is they like, like they fall in love. Like they get married as a bit of a sham. They go on, a honeymoon in Paris for the what she calls the green card album. They like <laughs> they bomb around Europe for a little while. She meets his Italian family. Okay, so she she breaks up with her girlfriend. Yeah, like like okay. in this kind of time she breaks up with her girlfriend and then she's married to this guy for a long time. Like they have a couple of children together, right? Like they go to Italy every year for a month and live with his family and like cook with his grant with his mother and and um, have like these beautiful like like Italy scenes of them all cooking around this open kitchen and that um, and it, like just her personal love story is really engaging throughout this and kind of like her cooking story it's it's sprinkled throughout you know it shows up it's told linearly and it's I don't know just a cool interesting story it sounds to me like a cool interesting story it is a cool and interesting story hmm. um, does she talk about food at all <laughs> or is it mostly just about her? So it, it, she talks about food, but only it is a little bit on the back burner, which is like oh, kind of like crazy. A, like food lingo. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Like she talks about food. Like food is always present in this, but this really is a story about her life, her relations, her relationships, her progress as a chef kind of told through the, always told through the medium of food. Right. Is it fair to say that like, this is kind of just like, not another memoir, but like just kind of a unique perspective into the food scene again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I always think of like, I always think of like uh, the JD Vance book that I brought ages ago on this show, the hillbilly elegy. And one of the most interesting parts of that book is you got to peek inside of these worlds that you didn't necessarily have access to 
right? Like you got to peek inside of what it was like to be a student at Yale Law School. You got to peek inside what it was like to be a, what was he, a Green Beret or or a Navy SEAL or something. A doctor scientist, yeah. Yeah, right. Like one of the cool things about this book is you get to peek inside what it's like to work at a crazy busy New York City restaurant that you own. You get to peek inside what it's like to like live in Italy for a month every year as you cook with your husband's like super Italian family. So, I mean, this is a memoir and it offers all that. If it's in Italy, I think you can just say Italian. Su- <laughs> no, super Italian. <laughs> These, like, everybody are, hey, have you noticed everybody around here is really Italian? <laughs> <laughs> what if there's something in the water. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So like, like this is the strength of this book is the memoirness of this book. The, the strength of this book, mm-hmm. the memoirness and the strength of this book is, you know, are you willing to go along with Gabrielle Hamilton for 300 pages? And I, I thought it was great. I'm super happy I did. These both sound pretty good for Food Week, uh, our sequel um, to Food Week, uh, last Food week's week episode. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I don't know how Food Week is going to be next week, but you know, obviously we'll some see. more competition there. Ian, your book sounds uh, good. It sounds like it's not for just beginners, which I do like, um, or it could be, but you get there's more depth to it, which I appreciate. Uh, Joseph, your book adds, uh, I think, probably a different perspective to the restaurant industry, which is uh, a female perspective, which is not common enough. Uh, So Ian, you lose. I'd like to hear uh, more about the female perspective in the restaurant industry. And uh, that's pretty much it. I think I'm just interested in that. If you would like to learn more about um, You Don't Know Lit's perspective on social media, you can go ahead and check out our uh, Facebook feed, our Instagram, or our Twitter at you don't know lit. You could leave us a five star review on the iTunes store, or you could head over to you don't know lit podcast.com and suggest a theme or a book. Yeah. And tell a friend. I know we don't have any friends anymore now that mm. we all work from home. Um, right. But well, those people weren't your real friends anyway. Those yeah. people were coworkers. Send a telegram, I guess is what I'm getting at. All right. Um, I have a quote from the moment that Gabrielle Hamilton decides to open up her restaurant. Um, And she kind of talks about how woefully unprepared she is for it. And um, also kind of what what inspired her, like what she thought of when she was opening it. She says, I didn't have an ounce of what typically matters, but I had all of that and I wanted to bring all of it. Every last detail of it. The old goat herder smoking filterless cigarettes coming down from the mountain, crushing oregano and wild mint underfoot. Giannis cooking me two fried eggs without even asking me if I cared for something to eat. That sweet, creamy milk that Walla and Deli frothed by pouring into a long, sweeping arc between two pots held as far apart as the full span of his arms from his cart decorated with a thousand fresh marigolds into his tiny 30-seat restaurant. I wanted a place with a velvet underground CD that made you nod your head and feel warm with recognition. I wanted the lettuce and eggs at room temperature. The waiter to bring you something to eat or drink that you didn't even ask for when you arrived cold and early and undone by your day in the city. I wanted the toasted manti from the Turkish wedding I'd been part of, the butter and sugar sandwiches we ate as kids after school for a snack, the tarnished silverware and chipped wedding china from a paladar in Havana, and the canned sardines I ate in that little apartment on 29th Street. 
The veal marrow my mother made us eat as kids that I grew to crave as an adult. We would have brown butter paper on the tables, not linen tablecloths, and when you finished your meal, the server would just pull the pen from behind her ear, scribble the bill directly on paper like Margarita had done. We would use jelly jars as wine glasses. We would put a rubber band around the middle of the wine bottle like I had done with Costa Sidianus in Athens. And if you wanted to drink only half, you could pay for just half, like Margarita's place at that far end port in Serifios. When we ran out of lamb for the night, we would just run out. There would be no foam, no conceptual, no intellectual food, just the salty, sweet, starchy, brothy, crispy things that one craves when one is actually hungry. There would be nothing tall on the plate. The portions would be generous. There would be no emulsions, no crab cocktail served in a martini glass with his claw hanging over the rim. In an ecstatic farewell to my years of corporate catering, we would never serve anything but a martini in a martini glass, preferably gym. I wanted all of that crammed into this filthy little gem. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's it's lovely.